Welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter, and this is our 50th episode. And my name is James Newton, your co-host. And to honor the 50th episode of Casually Critical, we are doing a casual correspondence. Now, those of you who've been listening for a while, uh, we used to do correspondence in the middle of every episode, but we thought it would be better uh, in this new structure to uh, just have separate episodes for correspondence every once in a while, maybe two or three episodes a season, uh, where we just answer your big questions about some of the related episodes we've recorded in the past uh, season, or um, just whatever questions you have about the podcast or about uh, recent movies you've watched or TV shows. So we had a really great turnout, and I really appreciate that uh, as the PR and graphic design officer, quote unquote, on in this <laughs> machine that is casually critical. It's been really fun corresponding with you guys. Um, I hope I haven't been unresponsive or too formal with you. I just want you to know that here and now we're going to be answering your questions, uh, and we really appreciate you guys um, communicating with us. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, not that I haven't had fun in the past when we've recorded our episodes, but I, I've just been, James and I both have been really excited to dive in. Both of us have prepared our questions, our answers to your questions independently of one another. So I have no idea what James is thinking about any of this. He has no idea what I'm thinking. We're going to figure this out together and it's going to be a blast. Some of these questions are going to ask us certain things about genres of movies, types of movies. Uh, there might be spoilers uh, we'll try and give you a heads up when we're about to spoil something. But if you really don't want certain movies to be spoiled, you can always head over to the description of this podcast episode where I've included timestamps for every single question. So you can always um, head on over to a segment or skip a segment if you don't want things to be spoiled for you. And one last housekeeping thing. Um, if you guys are tuning in, Please rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you're there listening on either of those platforms. Uh, that would mean a lot to us. It would help us become more visible to other people, and it would uh, just make us uh, feel good and know kind of what your feedback is about the podcast based on your star rating. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into it with our first question from Mario M. Thank you so much, Mario. Your question is... What actor would you want to play in a feature film, Daniel? So I had a few, uh, a few honorable mentions, and then I'll have my answer. So I, I said, in terms of personality, in terms of overall uh, performance, I think Chris Pratt. Just I, I love the guy. I, I think he would do a, a fantastic job. Uh, he plays a character in the movie Onward called Barley. He's the older brother, and. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the few movie <laughs> characters I've seen in a while where I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is me up to 10, but like this, this feels like me. The other honorable mention, this guy's nothing like me, but I would love to see him do a take on me as Robert Downey Jr. I think, huh. I don't know. He's just, he's fun. I, I'm not sure. Um, okay. But the overall person that I would love to see portray me uh, would be Jesse Plemons. Now, Ooh. Jesse Plemons is an actor that James and I have kind of, we, we took a liking to about a few years back. Um, he's in Breaking Bad in a small role. He's in the experimental film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which came out in 2020. He's also in the film Judas and the Black Messiah. And he's a lot more quiet in those movies to play me 
he'd have to be a little bit more out there. But I really do think he has the potential. I think he would do a fantastic job. And he kind of looks like me. I can see it. I can see it in a way. Um, I think he could he could definitely play you in some of the subtle expressions that he gives to some of his roles. I've only seen I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which we might talk about more later, yeah. uh, and Judas and the Black Messiah. But I really want to see The Power of the Dog, which is a Netflix original that he, he was in right. uh, last year. And I just, I want to say that's a good fit for you. And also look out Academy because Jesse Plenman's, if he's playing Daniel Carpenter or somebody else, he's going to be getting an award sometime soon. Everybody watch out for that. He's really cool. Excellent. All right, James, I'm really excited to hear who would cast you. Well, who would you cast? Uh, I didn't have any honorable mentions. The first thing that came to mind was Adam Scott, who plays uh, Ben in Parks and Rec. Oh my and gosh. he's also... <laughs> He's also the main villain in uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Yeah. A lot of my students, whenever I was an animation teacher, said they remind, uh, I reminded them of Adam Scott. So uh, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is a, this is a pretty good fit. I like this guy. And the yeah. way he is portrayed in Parks and Rec is very much like the straight man. And I think that he would be a, a good fit for me. I think he's a little dorky. He's a little kind of like... he. I think I'm often the straight man to Daniel's wild card in a lot of circumstances. So I think it's a good fit. That's very true. Yeah. I'm just imagining these two actors like Adam Scott and Jesse Plemons. That'd be, Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah Adam Scott's great. a great choice. I love his approachable quirkiness in parks yeah. and rec. He's quirky, but he doesn't try to be. He's a straight man that thinks he's always a straight man, but sometimes he isn't. And that's right. part of what makes him so endearing. So I think that's an excellent choice. Thank you. Our next uh, question asker, there's got to be a better way of saying that, is from Lily H. My cousin, shout out, Biofam, what, what up? Uh, <laughs> she wants to know, what are your top movies from each year for the last five years? Now, I will say, James, I don't know how you interpreted this question. I included this year as part of those five years from 2018 to 2022. Um, but what years did you consider and what is, what is your answer? I interpret it the other way. I did 2017 to 2021 uh -huh. since 2022 hasn't ended yet. Dang it. But uh, that way we'll get a, a broader spectrum of, of films here. I, I'm thinking there'll be a couple that we might, we might agree on. We will see. Okay. But uh, I will go ahead and go and, and give you a, a quick spiel about each one. Uh, my my nomination for 2017 is Logan. Uh, it's mm. the best superhero movie, in my opinion, ever made, probably. Dang. Uh, everyone, uh, lower your guns. Uh, I like it because <laughs> it's more personal. It's more grounded. And it's it's got a lot of heart to it. Uh, and it, it for that reason, it really captivates me, the relationship between Logan and this child that he comes upon. If you haven't seen it, Check it out. It's also rated R, so keep that in mind. Right. 2018, Won't You Be My Neighbor, a documentary mm. about Mr. Rogers. It's the only documentary that I've given a five out of five. It wow. really encapsulates. If you have any feelings at all for Mr. Rogers, you should watch this movie because it, it goes into a great deal of depth about why he does what he does and who he is behind the camera. And the things that he advocated for in television, really powerful stuff. 2019, Knives Out, full review, 
is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. We have a review out. It's really great. I won't say anything else. Just check out that episode if you want to learn more. 2020, I said Pixar's Soul. I really enjoyed Soul. I thought it was a good insight into the artistic, expressive side of a lot of people and just kind of seeing that like everyone is capable of that just in everyday life. And also the movie ends prematurely and kind of sits with the protagonist for the last like 10 minutes of it. And it's really interesting to see where that goes next. And then my 2021 is Inside by Bo Burnham. And we just did a review on that, so you can check that out too. Daniel, what are your top five, 2018 to 2022? So there, there will be some similarities. I did do some honorable mentions. Um, as I was going through, because I went on IMDb, I looked at the top movies of each year to help me get an idea of just how many movies came out. Um, I felt very insecure, because there's a lot of movies that I want to see that I felt like I should have seen before giving this definitive list. So just know that this is all uh, privy to change. And also my tastes, I think, are rather basic. So 2018, uh, this is an interesting choice. Uh, my favorite movie is actually Avengers Infinity War. It is probably the best MCU movie, which is right now saying a lot, uh, making the villain as the protagonist, someone that is a huge deal, but we don't really know that much about. And seeing the depths of him wrestling with feeling misunderstood and how he goes about trying to accomplish this and at what cost is really interesting in a, it, it's a very interesting in a, in an unorthodox way. Uh, there are some honorable mentions, Christopher Robin, which gets, you don't see kids movies get this philosophical. Now I get that the books are like that, but the fact that this movie even does that is amazing Unfortunately, despite the solid start, it does fall into a very lazy and lackluster ending, which I won't spoil if you want to see it, um, but it's a very watered-down ending compared to the strong beginning. And then Upgrade, which is a very low-budget sci-fi film about this guy who has this biotechnology installed in his neck, and it allows him to do crazy and violent things. And it's, it's very surreal. The story is very interesting. It's remarkable enough to stick out in my mind. It's uh, boring enough to where I don't always think of everything that happened in the story, but it is worth checking out if you have the time for it. The ending and the ending music still haunts me. 2019. Uh, ni okay, it's a tie. Huh. Because there's a lot of good things that came out in 2019. Now You're you absolutely right. And 1917, my favorite war movie of all time, isn't even on the list. That's cool. how many good movies are, are, we're out. Um, but yeah, Knives Out, I almost said it earlier. Knives Out is one of my favorites, and it's tied with Parasite. Mm -hmm. Because holy cow. And then as an honorable mention is Jojo Rabbit, which James and I awarded the best overall film when we gave our uh, 2019 movie awards. That was so hard for me, Daniel. Looking yeah. at those three titles, I was on the same I was on the same level of struggle uh yeah. with 2019 cuz wow, those three movies, you need to watch all three of them to really yeah. see the full scope of what live action did in 2019. Now, let's say you say Daniel, it's the coward's way out to make a tie because if Lily's watching this or listening to this and she says, "Daniel, I ask you for your top movie, no ties." I would say, "Okay, knives out." 
Parasite is an amazing work of art, is a tour de force. But if I had to rewatch one, it would be Knives Out. Yes. <laughs> because it's easier to go down when I'm watching it. And it's more easily enjoyable with a large group of people. I introduced. And that's why I said Knives Out too. Yeah. Uh, really? Because it's so memorable. Right. And even though the craft of Jojo Rabbit and Parasite are really, really on point. And the same, I mean, it's really, Jojo Rabbit's really funny and so is Parasite, honestly, in some moments. Yeah. But Knives Out is just iconic in some ways that I can't describe and it's it's a personal preference Yeah. with this one. It's quotable, it's fun, and it's great to rewatch. Absolutely. Uh, also, shout out in 2019 to The Mandalorian Season 1. Just an amazing, simplified story in a very lore-driven world of Star Wars. Okay, 2020, my number one, my honorable mentions first, Soul, which as a rule of thumb, you never want to make your movie about the afterlife because it's always going to suck. But Pixar did this and they made it awesome. <laughs> yep. How, how do you do that? Uh, part of it was they didn't, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go too much into the world building, but they, they, they say so much about so many broad, vague things, and they do it so well. And I, I walked out of there thinking, how the heck did they get away with all this stuff? But they <laughs> do. Pete Doctor, if you're listening to this, man, how do you make such abstract concepts like, I want to make a movie about feelings. I want to make a movie about purpose and make it so vague and yet so specific. I, I don't understand how... Just well done. So that's also, not Pete Doctor. Pete Doctor, if you're listening to this, um, and uh, I have a question too. Are you hiring? And if so, <laughs> can I have special privileges? Uh, I know you got to know people to get into that industry over there. So can we just say that we know each other so I can get a job? Thank you. Oh, I was going to ask the same thing. Well, oh. Pete Doctor, can I be a Sodori consultant? I I'll, I'll I won't charge you anything. I'll pay for my <laughs> own. I'll pay for my own airfare ticket. Just. Let's get coffee at the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf in Los Angeles. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> coffee date with Daniel, job opportunity for James. Okay, I'm taking too long. So my honorable mention was Soul, and then my other one was Boys State. Because I, too, selected a documentary. Boys State, if you haven't seen it, it's an Apple TV Plus original. And it is a fascinating examination of these young teenage boys in Austin, Texas, as they try to assemble their own representative government and how each one has his own agenda in this basically massive role-playing game that's been going on for decades every year. But it brings out the best and worst of the future men of America. It's a fascinating, fascinating movie. Really well done. And if you know anything about documentary filmmaking, the fact that they're able to record all of these story arcs is mind-blowing. I would not want to know how much footage they had to cut out because I can't imagine how many people they had to cover to ensure they could get some significant people covered. It, it's, it's astounding. And if you haven't seen it, you're not going to get it. But my number one pick for 2020 personal preference, Palm Springs, one of the best mm. recent comedies to come out. Uh, does such an interesting job playing with nihilism, playing with finding your purpose. And it takes a dead genre, which was the groundhog's day time paradox genre 
and it breathes fresh air into it. And it also stars a very versatile boy, J.K. Simmons, who continues <laughs> to impress me by his seemingly quirky yet deliberate choices in acting. Uh, he just impresses me in the most minor of ways. I, I don't, I can't describe it. So 2020 is Palm Springs. 2021 is Dune. Uh, because Dune has done for sci-fi what few movies have done with for sci-fi in a long time. The last time we saw anything notable in sci-fi was Guardians of the Galaxy. And then Marvel said, let's beat the dead horse. Uh, with Dune, Denis Villeneuve said, um, heck to the no, I'm making this my own thing. I'm making it as epic as Lord of the Rings, but as lore-driven and as mysterious as the first few Star Wars movies. And there are forces at work and there's a darkness and it's really, it's just so fun. It's the equivalent of me flipping through those art of books, except in movie form. And it's really worth <laughs> checking out. Please listen to our, uh, at least the non-spoiler section of that. Cause we did review it this season as well. And then some honorable they mentions, uh, inside and then a guilty pleasure, something that I enjoyed more than I should. The suicide squad by James Gunn. In 2021, I it it was just a fun movie to watch. I, I don't know. It's like the perfect mindless summer blockbuster. Really fun. A lot of effort. James Gunn had just been canceled for Marvel, and he said that making this movie was incredibly therapeutic for him, and I can tell why. So check it out. Honorable mentions show-wise, Ted Lasso and Invincible. Really, really underrated stuff. Okay, I'm taking too long. This year... So far, my most favorite movie of 2022 is The Batman. Uh, it is my favorite superhero movie of all time, currently. Uh, it does everything really well. The aesthetic, the posters, <laughs> the color, the trailers, uh, the marketing, for the most part, uh, the acting choices, the story, the director, the camera work, the sound mixing. It's all top notch. It's everything I could have asked for and more. Uh, as an honorable mention, there is an indie film that is out called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, I think right now it's in that weird hiatus where it's almost out of theaters and going into uh, distribution. Uh, politically, message-wise, can't say I vibe with everything about it, but the creators behind it, two men by the name of Daniel, they refer to themselves as Daniels. Uh, they also made Swiss Army Man, which we do have a review on. They have always taken risks with their movies and never been afraid to just go all in and I love it and everything everywhere all at once is a blockbuster done it's an indie that's a blockbuster and it's an indie dressed up as a blockbuster but it's really good and very inspirational as a creative to watch so that was a lot but those are my top movies from each year Lily, thank you so much for your question. And Mario, I don't know if I gave you a shout out yet, but thanks a lot for your question as well. These are both great, great openers. So up next, we have a question from Nathan F., friend of the show. Hi, Nate. Hey, Nate. Hope you're doing well. Good luck on your test, buddy. What's y'all's favorite genre to watch alone and in a group? So I would say alone, I like to watch. <clears throat> I love comedies alone. And there's a few reasons for this. One is if it's a comedy that's well-known, people tend to talk over it and I can't enjoy it. So case in point, 
Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I still need to see that by myself. Because the first time I saw that movie was with a large group of people, and every single time one of the quote-unquote good parts came up, they would talk over it. I couldn't enjoy it. Second reason why comedy is my favorite to watch alone is because in a group, I'm always incredibly scared that no one's going to find the things I find funny to be funny. So Mm. there's a safety in that. And also, it helps erase the sting of loneliness when I get to laugh and enjoy stuff. So Disney, animations, uh, you know, Knives Out. There's, I mean, Knives Out's fun in alone or in a group, but comedies are what I gravitate towards alone. And then in a group, um, I really, I really enjoy watching thrillers. Uh, I think the reason for that is trauma bonding. Uh, when you all suffer uh, through anxiousness and just fear together, you walk out of the theater somewhat closer than when you started. Also, having more people in the room allows me to disperse the anxiety I feel to other people. <laughs> so we all kind of share the load. James and I experienced this firsthand several times, but one of my favorite memories is Parasite and A Quiet Place because James and I, you know, got to a point where we were literally holding each other's hand in the theaters. And yep. I love James platonically as a friend, but in that <laughs> moment, when you deal with anxiety and trauma, you're not ashamed to hold another man's hand because it's so much better than the fear of what's on screen. You're absolutely correct. And I, I want to act as a sounding board there because holding a bro's hand <laughs> while watching a scary movie is a good bonding experience. And that is why I also said watching a thriller or horror movie as a group hey. is delightful. Alone, I said experimental films. Hmm. Whenever I am alone with my thoughts, it makes those thoughts louder. And whenever I watch an experimental movie with a group of people, I feel like some people will speak during the movie and with particularly challenging films to absorb, which I will talk about another later. Hmm. It's, It's hard for me to really dig deep into my own thoughts about the film if there's other people around mm. i'm just constantly aware of other people if i'm watching a movie with them plus going back to thrillers and horrors as a group it's really really fun to make fun of the monster slash killer in a horror movie yeah together it, it makes it feel more safe so yeah i i agree with that and um i i remember when we were talking about parasite in our review of it There was a sacred, because Parasite is like that experimental, uh, it is horror thriller, but it's also incredibly provocative and deep. And there's a lot of depth behind the fear. I remember, you know, James, when we were seeing in theaters, as the ending happened, there was a a considerable amount of time when the credits rolled where we just kind of sat there and we absorbed it. And I, I don't think, I think that's an exception. But going off what you're saying, which I agree with, I think many people want to just leave the theater after the credits, but sometimes you just can't. You got to take it in. You got to leave room in the quiet to really let your thoughts help you process. And when I see movies with a lot of different people, their first thought is, oh, Daniel's the film guy. What'd you think? What'd you think? And it's like, well, sometimes I have things to say, but most of the time I just want to let it sit with me a little bit longer. Because sometimes something tastes good at first, but the aftertaste is a little bit different. And you got to leave it time to marinate in your mind. 
So I totally agree with you there. The next question that Nate had for us was, if you could choose watching all rom-coms or all dramas for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Uh, I want to get technical for a moment. Technically, everything is a drama because drama requires oh, conflict. Boy. Everything is. Okay. But, <laughs> but you didn't want to know that, Nathan. You wanted to know if I could watch all rom-coms or all dramas. And I would say all dramas. Uh, because I, I think too many rom-coms would hurt my brain and it would just make me go crazy. Um, I like rom-coms, but if I had to choose, I think dramas are more varied and challenging in slightly different ways for me. I agree. All dramas, there's a lot more to sink your teeth into. And I would much rather have a thought-provoking movie than a mindless movie if I had to watch something for the rest of my life. Yeah. Sometimes I love to blow off steam and watch a rom-com. And there's some really good rom-coms out there. I mean, Daniel talked about Palm Springs earlier. That was a fun yeah. 2020 watch with my roommate, bro, Daniel. Oh, yeah. However, there's some really popular rom-coms that I don't vibe with. And Daniel, I'm sure you can attest to this. 50 First Dates mm. has been recommended to me so many times. And Daniel and I watched it yeah. with his family yeah. in Austin. Yeah. And boy, oh boy, do I not like <laughs> that movie slash Adam Sandler, mostly Adam Sandler. Gee, I wonder if they're going to get together. Let's, <laughs> let's see if they get together romantically. Oh, they did. Wow. That is so surprising. The sad thing about 50 First Dates is that there's a lot of potential in the premise. Yeah. Uh, and they, some of it pays off at the end. Some of it doesn't. But it's the in-between that's really, uh, yeah, I won't go into it anymore here. You can enjoy your rom-coms if you want to, everybody. I'm sorry. And if you're looking for, if you're like me and your disposition is not towards rom-coms, I do have a few palate cleansers, Palm Springs, great movie. Not solely a rom-com, but it is partially a rom-com. Uh, if you want something that is straight up romantic, not even calm, just rom all the way, Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorite romantic movies. Ooh, you can't yeah, go that wrong. is good. That's a good one. Princess Bride is a classic movie because the guy's going to get the girl. And they tell you that at the very beginning. They're like, yeah, this is the greatest love story. Let's get into it. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> it knows what it is. And it's like, yep, nope, this is us. I'm like, all right, great, sweet. Uh, another movie I haven't seen in a while, but I remember enjoying was My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, it is a classic rom-com, but it also just, it's just quirky. I don't know. I, I like it. It's quirky without trying to be. It's very niche. but. It's really fun to see that nicheness realized. So uh, up next, our next victim, I mean guest, is Milan H., another uh, fan who's been with us pretty much from the beginning. He wants to know, what's a famously disliked movie that you like? Are we both going to say it? Sure. Glass. Glass. <laughs> it's a 2019 movie by M. Night Shyamalan, who is one of the biggest wild cards in Hollywood history. Um, Glass is not a movie that I personally think is the greatest superhero movie of all time. I don't think it's the best story of all time. Do I nope. think it's boring and some of the criticisms are valid? Absolutely. And yet, <laughs> why is it that I can't just dismiss it? Why is it that it just sticks with me and I find myself wanting to go back like an animal yearning for water going back to the watering hole. I don't know exactly, but there's something about it that's just so unabashedly, this is the direction I'm going with it. 
And it kind of works. I know. We saw it twice in theaters together whenever we were still in college. Yeah. And we did a whole review about it in season one, and I still quaint, can't quite put my finger on what is so good about it. There's a lot of focus on the individual characters and their struggles. Maybe that's why I like it so much. In my action movies, I want to connect with my characters because otherwise I don't feel threatened whenever action happens. Mm. So maybe that's why I like Glass so much. Glass is good. Um, Split before it is also amazing. But most people liked Split. So I don't, <laughs> I, I wouldn't <laughs> consider that. Um, another shout out is uh, I remember, I haven't seen this movie in a while since it was in theaters. But my family and I saw The Accountant, starring Ben Affleck, mm. as an autistic crime ring accountant. It's a very, it's interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's very subdued in its storytelling. It's not very uh, grandiose. It's not very excessive like most action movies are. It's different. So I remember it hit differently with me. I haven't seen it in a while. But... Something to check out for sure. The next question Milan had for us, which was more of just a statement than saying, please, please give me, which I don't <laughs> mind, is rank the Disney plus Marvel shows. Well, if you want to, uh, I haven't seen all the Disney plus shows. And if you listen to our non-spoiler section of Thor, Love and Thunder, you know that I never will. But here are the Ooh, shows. <laughs> here are the shows that I have seen in order. And also based on what I've heard, because I didn't finish all of these. Actually, I didn't finish one of them, which is my lowest. Number one is What If. Uh, episode one, I haven't seen. And I never will. Because it's <laughs> literally just Captain America, but without Steve Rogers. It's a different person. Number two is Loki. Uh, really taps into the more surrealist sci-fi but the climax, say what you will, and uh, soft spoilers, it's really just a bunch of people talking. That's really all yeah. it is. Talky, talky, talk. On paper, and I think this is why people like it, on paper, really interesting idea. But there are some things it says about free will and predestination regarding the MCU that kind of make everything seem arbitrary and make the plot hole people that write for the writers have more ammo to fill in the Marvel's Marvel's deficiencies. But yeah, overall, uh, a show that tries to break some new ground and does it far better than number three, which is WandaVision. I loved the first few episodes of WandaVision. I really did. And the fact that it was the harbinger for the MCU phase four, it wasn't initially, but it ended up being that way due to COVID. I was so on board for it. James and I both were. We saw every episode together when we were roommates. And then... The MCU said, gosh, dang it, we forgot who we were for a moment. <laughs> we were almost artistic for a second. And then they said, now let's just bring in the typical Marvel conventions. Let's have the bad guy be surprise villain. I don't know. And now she's getting her own spinoff movie show thing. And I am not here for it. So we have what if Loki, WandaVision, and then my final one is Hawkeye. Holy cow, did I not care about this movie. The little things I did care about were all about Hawkeye, the guy that this show is named after. But who are we following? <laughs> not Hawkeye. Heaven forbid we add a, a classic MCU character to the forefront. 
he's more of a glorified cameo, a supporting role, if you will. Uh, and I just stopped watching it. And based on what James has told me, who has seen the full thing, uh, there are some appearances by people I care a lot about. And the MCU's like, oh, surprise, it's the person. And yeah, those are, those are, those are my rankings. My rankings are very similar, and I've also seen similar shows. Loki's at the top, followed by What If. Cool. And I switched those in your order, Daniel, because What If is kind of hit or miss with some of the episodes, in my yeah, opinion. True. But what if, what if is definitely, I love the creativity in What If. It's a good time. Yeah. I think the ending is just really fun and awe-inspiring to watch, which isn't something I can say a lot about a lot of MCU action sequences now. Yeah. Um, followed by WandaVision takes third place. Mm. Uh, one other thing I'll add about WandaVision is that another few Marvel tropes that they fall into, a villain that is very similar to the protagonist and big action sequence at the end that doesn't feel choreographed in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. It's just, it makes me sad. I do think there were some good performances in WandaVision, and I think the first few episodes were pretty great. Yeah. And also, I really love the actress that plays the uh, antagonist in this movie. She'll be appearing in the new Knives Out movie, and I'm so stoked. Oh my gosh. That's going to be, that's going to be great. And at the bottom is Hawkeye. I saw the whole thing. <laughs> I don't think it's terrible. Uh, I don't think it's, it's the worst. I don't think it's, the end of the world. I think there are Marvel things that have been put out in recent times that are worse. I think they do go into Hawkeye and his feelings about being second rate and being a family man mm. a fair amount further into the show, probably where you didn't get Daniel. And then also the main protagonist connecting with Hawkeye. Mm. There's some good moments there, but I do, it does make me sad once again what they do with one of the antagonists in this show that has appeared in other Marvel content. And I won't go much further into that, but I feel like they did this character a big injustice at the end. Yeah. Didn't really make them as much of a threat as they could have been. So our next question comes from Andrew P. Uh, this is a kind of summary or paraphrasing of his original question, which was, uh, what do you think about the crossovers in Spider-Man No Way Home? Do they service the plot as well as they service the nostalgia of the audience? So we're probably going to get into spoilers here. Um, so feel free again to check the description. Uh, skip ahead if you haven't seen it. Uh, but for me, I, I think the way that this question is worded or paraphrased, uh, I, I really don't think, I'm not sure that nostalgia should be served the same way that the plot is. I think the way I see nostalgia, what we're trying to do is make the nostalgia the milkshake when in actuality it should be the cherry on top. Nostalgia should not be a substitute for a story. It should be a small addition to it, if at all. Uh, and I think the writers, better than any other MCU movie recently, the writers did the best they could with the material that was given, with all the characters that they ended up adding, the Spider-Man villains and such like that. Uh, obviously, as James and I alluded to during our Multiverse of Madness episode during the season one or the season three pilot was there's a lot of required reading. You got to see all these movies going full spoilers because, again, we warned you uh, the other Spider-Man, the other Spider-Man villains. There are I mean, those are at least five additional movies in addition to the MCU 
compendium that you have to have to watch. That's going to be a lot for newer viewers. Uh, the other thing is the more crossovers and references you add, the more niche your audience is going to be. So uh, I don't think Spider-Man No Way Home is a good movie for general audiences. I think it's a good movie for diehard Spider-Man fans. I don't think it's a good movie for just anyone to watch. I don't think people are going to get a lot out of it or as much out of it. Um, I think that in a way, by adding so much nicheness, Marvel is more so betting on themselves and their own marketability than they are the actual story, which worries me. They're more like, you're going to watch this because of these characters. You're going to watch it because of the other Spider-Men. You're not really going to see it because we did a good job, even though they did. That's primarily not why people are going to like this movie. So overall, I think the crossovers are well done. They do add some small world building to the villains and the heroes that I really like. They don't treat them just like pure spectacle, like, oh, they're here, rejoice, like, great. No, they, they do some work. They add some elbow grease into it. Uh, but more importantly, and I'll end on this note, the thing I do like that services the plot more than the nostalgia is they never forget that this is a movie about Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Who's the Spider-Man that makes the big choices at the end? Who's the Spider-Man that decides, no, I'm going to try and redeem these villains. I'm going to try and work through. Who's the Spider-Man that decides, I want everyone to forget about Peter Parker? It's Tom Holland. He's the Spider-Man that makes the big choices. And this is always a movie throughout, from beginning to end, that never forgets, no, this is a Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. And we're going to have that sent around his character the whole time. So overall, I was really well done. The nostalgia does worry me, but that's more so to do with the MCU and filmmaking in general, not just Marvel, but overall, considering what they had to work with, they did a fantastic job. What do you think, James? Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think there were a lot of explanations that were required after I watched this movie to really understand the full scope of the character arcs that were going on with the extended universe characters. Mm. I loved what Tom Holland's character was going through the decisions he was making, and like you said, how everything ultimately rests on him. I think that that was great. However, I've only seen the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, and I've only seen the mm. first uh, other guy, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. <laughs> the other guy. Yeah, sorry, there's too many Spider-Men. Yeah. Um, but there, I think I need to rewatch it to appreciate it more, because people had to explain to me kind of some of the aside scenes between Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and their hmm. conversations they were having with other characters that meant things that I didn't understand and therefore I didn't enjoy as much, hmm. which I think is indicative since I kind of came in with a blank slate Yeah, that if anyone watched this movie without really knowing much other than the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies, they may not enjoy it as much. It's still a fun time. And like whenever I was there, the amount of, freak out that was going on whenever Tobey <laughs> Maguire first appeared through a portal. That was cool. Yeah. That was really cool. It was, it was an experience. It felt like a, it was a similar feeling of like, Ooh, that make my brain go, go buzz, buzz. Like whenever the first Avengers crossover happened and yeah. two Avengers characters appeared on screen together. Yeah. It was exciting, but, uh, it is blatantly nostalgic. I will say that. However, the plot is advanced by these blatantly nostalgic points. Which you gotta hand it to the writers, uh, the directors of this, of this movie. Absolutely. Last thing I'll say, Daniel, 
something you mentioned before about this movie is that it'll probably be almost entirely forgotten in 10 years because of the required reading. Yeah. It's too spread out and it's not connected to the MCU enough. So that's one sad thing. I think if someone picked up this movie and watched it in 20 years, you know, a 20 year old in 20 years watches this movie, they won't know or understand a lot of it. Cross. So crossovers are really fun. However, something I came to recently, a shower thought actually, was you know how every decade there's like a certain type of movie? Like there's action movies from the 80s, the 90s, more, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with all of them, but I'm convinced that for the 2010s and maybe I think the 2020s, the 2020s are going to be remembered for just the sheer amount of crossovers and nostalgia bait. I think that's our trope. I think we're living it. And I think... <laughs> I think that's something that future movies are going to mock. Like, oh, everyone's crossing over with everyone. So that's my prediction. I think No Way Home was a really fun theater experience. But in several years, it's going to age like milk because of how niche it truly is. Um, Yeah. So I think people still enjoy it, just not as many. Thank you, Andrew, for your question. Yeah. We'll go ahead and segue on over to Emily S., Uh, with her question saying, why is Disney trying to strangle Pixar into streaming-only releases? Mm. Inquiring minds want to know. Well, inquiring minds, (laughs) we have some speculation for you. And It's a very good question. Thank you. And some armchair research (laughs) that I did. Yeah. Uh, So did I. Daniel, you want to go ahead and kick us off? Yeah. Did we read the same article from Variety Magazine, James? No, we did not. I just okay. looked over Wikipedia, uh, Wikipedia filmography <laughs> stuff. I'll talk about it later. Flickipedia. There you go. Flickipedia. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you, like, and by research, I literally just read this one article. It's from Variety. Hollywood calls it the trades. It's one of the biggest magazines in Hollywood. And, and therefore, there's a lot of thorough information they get into. Basically, according to Variety.com, there's a phenomenon that Disney's going through with, it's called churn, which is the percentage of subscribers canceling their monthly memberships. And so according to them, essentially Disney is, um, as an incentive to prevent churn from happening, they are keeping Pixar movies streaming only as an incentive. Uh, apparently Disney, and this was true of Netflix for a while, but Disney does not release the numbers of their streaming service to the public but they have apparently been experimenting with streaming only releases, hybrid releases and exclusively theatrical releases on the marketing side. It's very likely they're using Pixar, which is one of their largest assets as a brilliant strategic move to keep people subscribed to Disney plus. So that's the marketing side from the best I've been able to tell. I take that with a grain of salt because Disney's a huge company. And so I think a lot of people, especially bigger publications are more worried to call them out. I, however, and James, I assume, having a humble following of a few dozen people on Casually Critical, I am not afraid to call Disney out because I've got nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the marketing side. Uh, but what about the message that that's sending out? I think for me, it's very evident that people at Pixar have felt very hurt because they've put a lot of elbow grease into their films. And while the theater industry has some deficiencies, it is still seen as the de facto platform. Streaming, especially recently, is still not at a status of, oh, this is where the good content is. It's usually the theaters. 
it's being sent straight to streaming seems to be similar to being sent to VHS back in the day. Um, so I think it hurts creators. I think that while it may help Disney Plus, Disney seems to uh, be keeping their own animations out of exclusive streaming. I think there's a double standard going on. Uh, Encanto, at least for the first 30 days, was in theaters. Raya and the Last Dragon was a simultaneous release, but you did have to pay more to see that on streaming. $30 in addition to uh, paying the subscription service. So I, I'm not a fan. I think it sends the wrong types of messages. I think it exposes Disney seeing Pixar as second rate. And I think inadvertently it might infect the public consciousness as well, animations are cartoons anyway, which I already ranted about, but that's kind of my <laughs> thoughts on the matter as an animation man, James, I'm really interested to hear how you tackle this question. Well, I was trying to look at theatrical releases and see if Pixar, before they were acquired by Disney, had any conflicts with Disney's releases. Mm. So 2005 and before, I was trying to see, like, maybe, like, Disney acquired Pixar so that they wouldn't have so much competition at the box office at certain days. You know, your Thanksgiving weekends, your Christmas weekends, your right. beginning of the summer releases. The big, the big money makers. Yeah, but that wasn't true at all. Uh, I was looking at uh, stuff from 2001 to 2005-ish, and there were no conflicts. So the narrative that I was trying to weave was, well, Disney just wants to knock Pixar off and, you know, use them as their, their second-rate puppet. But I don't know if that's true. Emily, the way you're, you're wording this question is, why is Disney trying to strangle Pixar into streaming-only releases? So it sounds like you already have an idea that, like, Disney, this big corporate glutton, is nommy, 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 eating all the other little guys <laughs> and saying, here, Pixar, you go ahead. Just test the unfamiliar waters and see how it goes. And I think what you were saying, Daniel, touches on that. But I, it reinforces a narrative that makes me sad. I know I'm saying I'm sad. There's things that make me sad about Disney lately. Uh, it's true. I'm sorry. It, it makes me sad. There's some great things going on. But there are also, also things that make me sad. We do have a question later on that's going to touch on marketing, so I don't want to steal my own thunder away from that. But I think it's, in American culture, we have come to root for the underdog. And I think sometimes the danger in that is we can look at something that's big, like Disney, and say, okay, that's implicitly bad. And I really don't think it is as much there are some shades of gray uh think of all the 2d animation that they've released that they continue to hype up and have nostalgia for and have characters and rides at disneyland uh does that make a movie great no some movies come out that are very mediocre that disney hypes up big time i think disney tries to make people heard but they fall short in a lot of crucial areas. And as a result, it can do a lot of harm. When Disney screws up, it's on a big scale because it's a big company. When a smaller animation company like Leica, when they screw up, it's like a small pebble in a big ocean. Not a lot of people are going to notice. Tragically, when Leica does something really right, not a lot of people notice either. When Disney does something right, everyone loves it. So there's an inherent blessing and a curse that comes with that 
By the way, shout out to Kubo and the Two Strings, which oh, yeah. from their box office earnings worldwide made like forty $40 million. Oh my gosh. Because their budget their budget was twenty six million and then they made like sixty to eighty million worldwide. Oh. Compare that to the live action Lion King movie, oh. which is now the second highest grossing animated movie in the world oh. and in history. Anyway, I, I could barely watch five thing, minutes of that. Oh, I know. I know. There was a thing that I ran into a lot when I was talking about animation as a younger person. And when I talked about Pixar movies, people would say, you mean Disney movies? I would talk about The Incredibles. I would talk about Ratatouille. I would talk about Toy Story, even things that came out before the acquisition. And people would say, you mean Disney movies? And... I do think the narrative that's reinforced here is that Disney is Pixar, Pixar is Disney. There is no difference. Strange World, the new Disney animated movie that's coming out in November, that could be that could be anything. Maybe even Pixar team's working on it. We don't know. No, it's a Disney exclusive animated release. You know why? Because it's getting a theatrical release. Hmm. It's coming to the point where Pixar and Disney are no longer distinct. The same goes with some of the risks that are being taken in some of the stories they're telling recently. But um, that's another topic for another day. Thank you so much, Emily, for the question. A lot to think about and a lot to speculate about. I wish we had more concrete answers for you. Our next question is from Troy L., a guy who has historically asked some very interesting questions and some quirky ones. Troy, thank you for your contribution. Troy asks, what are some films you're surprised you liked as much as you did? My answer for that one is They Shall Not Grow Old, a documentary by Peter Jackson, which redoes a bunch of really cool World War I footage and makes it look and sound current day. I need to see say? that movie so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the trailer. I don't know where you can find it. I saw the trailer. I was super hyped. And now that it's out, I have no excuse. Films that I'm surprised I liked as much as I did. Um, Glass, although I was kind of hyped for it, and I guess I didn't have low expectations, but two films I was surprised by. One was Pacific Rim. Yes, I know it's a monster fodder film, but there are some things that unironically Guillermo del Toro does a fantastic job with, namely the staging of the action sequences, using rain and dark lighting to obscure some CG. So, And the movement and the framing, making things feel big and slow and cumbersome, it's really well done. It's a well done disposable blockbuster movie. I don't know how else to describe it. Go watch it if you want some noise in the background when you're watching a movie. And then finally, the biggest kingpin, Lego movie. Ooh. I walked in with my friends expecting to have a good time. My phasers were set to destroy. I was excited to roast apart this trashy corporate kids movie. And boy, was I proven wrong. It has not only a lot of heart, had some, not some, it had a lot of genuinely funny moments that Phil Lord and Chris Miller could do only with their ADD creative style of humor. They do a thousand jokes per minute and it's hilarious. And I could tell some of the actors like Liam Neeson had a lot of fun getting to sink their teeth into these ridiculous yet somehow interesting characters. So thank you, Troy, for that question. Our next question is from Joseph L. 
Thank you so much, Joseph, for writing us, and thanks again for bringing us back to the air. We appreciate you, man. His question is, favorite art movie? End quote. What does this mean to you, Daniel? How do you interpret this question? So we, we talked a little bit before answering this question about how would we define an art movie? I'm going with the interpretation of a movie that's experimental, an art house movie, something that's a little bit unconventional. And I would say for me, there's a tie. One is a darker, uh, uncomfortable film, which is Anomalisa. Incredible use of animation, especially stop motion. And it really leans into the limitations of it instead of leans away from it. It's amazing. But there's another one that's a classic Napoleon Dynamite. I mean, huh. goodness gracious. Genie Good. of Fat Lard, get some dinner. It's just, it's... I love it. It is absurd. People either like it or hate it. I love it. It's quirky. It's fun. It touches on some really good coming of age stuff without getting tropey, which is so hard to do, but it does it so well. It's quirky. It's absurd. It's out of this world over the top. And yet it's so relatable at the same time. How about you, yeah. James? How do you define what is your favorite art movie and how would you define what an art movie is? I think going off your definition with experimental, taking big risks and doing things that are not conventional to Hollywood, um, I'm thinking of Ending Things by Peter Kaufman, who uh, also did Anomalisa. Really? Uh, I was going to mention Anomalisa uh, because he did both of these movies. And the reason I say I'm thinking of Ending Things is my go-to is because I couldn't stand to rewatch Anomalisa. Mm. I don't know if I could do it, man. It's yeah. too hefty. It's too heavy. But I'm thinking of ending things, I can handle it. I've watched it twice. It's one of those ones that, like I said, I would watch alone and just think about it. Hmm. Uh, it's it's kind of a weird experience, but it's it's a good movie. It's it's so confusing, and you just got to lean into that with hmm. movies like this. Another one I'm going to give a quick shout out to is Jojo Rabbit. I don't know if it is experimental or artsy in a lot of ways, but Adolf Hitler is a main character imaginary friend adolf hitler yeah and the main character is a nazi hitler youth yeah so that definitely does take some big risks that only an a24 type studio could do yeah so if you haven't seen any of those flicks check them out uh viewer discretion advised all of them are rated high highly pg-13 to dynamite. well that, yeah that one is more palatable but if you want yeah. an entryway into Art House, I would suggest starting with Napoleon Dynamite. But also, uh, content warning for Napoleon Dynamite, you may lose a couple brain cells along the way. Just <laughs> let them fly. Let them fly, buddy. Let them loose. Let them loose. Those are brain cells you can afford to lose. Um, yeah. Our next one is also from Nathan F. We decided to put this one a little bit later. We're getting a bit more philosophical now. Uh, he asks and wants to know, when analyzing a film, how much of your analysis focuses on story versus character? So we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier um, whenever talking about action films and how I love to be connected with a character so action has meaning. I think in order to be invested in a story, you need to connect with the players at their core mm. in some way. So I think both of these things are very important and integral, integral to telling a good story. I think there are some good movies out there that don't have strong protagonists. I think a lot of Nolan flicks 
vibe this way, and I know, Nate, you love Nolan. Mm. There's a lot of people-shaped characters in these movies that are pretty forgettable, but they serve as really cool vessels for a driving plot and action sequences that would never happen otherwise. So I do see how a plot can be more important than characters, but I think in order to fully enjoy a movie, there has to be a certain amount of sympathy for the protagonists. And for that to happen, they have to be established in some way. So yeah. sorry, Tenet. Yeah, I going off that, when it comes to story versus character, I'm honestly not sure what the difference is because I see story as character and your characters make up the story. So I want to I wanna dive into this a little bit, a mini kind of rant slash lesson, hopefully. And it all has to do with story. Story is king. Story is always first in the film. If you're going to do a good movie, you have to get the story right or nothing else matters. Uh, characters are not separate from the story. They are the story. It's the character's actions which propel us into the narrative. And the narrative in turn shapes the character. It's a give and a take. It's a yin and a yang. An example of this for characters, characters need three things. They need a clear motivation that fits in the film's context, something we see in them that we recognize, and a path they travel down that we can follow. So an example is a clear motivation that fits the film's context. Your character needs to want something, and the film's story and world needs to service that want. A good example of this is How to Train Your Dragon versus The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon. What does Hiccup want? Hiccup wants to be seen and validated as one of the Vikings, one of the boys, so to speak. And he's motivated to do that, and that is what puts him in conflict with the main story. Versus Rise of Skywalker, I'm not sure what Rey wants, and she's not motivated. And as a result, it's just pure spectacle, it's pure plot, and it really feels empty because she doesn't care, so why should we? We want the thing that gets us to the thing that gets us to the thing that gets us to the bad guy, and it feels very distant. We need something in the characters that we recognize, that we see in them. Uh, this is true. Iron Man versus Doctor Strange, too. Uh, the first Iron Man movie, Tony Stark, we shouldn't like. He's arrogant. He's cocky. He's full of himself. He's brash. He's impulsive. But we can't help fall in love with him because, to some degree, we want that to be us. We want that confidence. Because Tony Stark can be this arrogant jerk face, but at his best, he can be this confident guy who feels convicted, who feels like, no, I need things to change. Doctor Strange 2, there's nothing in Doctor Strange I recognize. There's nothing about, oh, yeah, I want to make a difference. It's just, oh, I need to stop people from doing bad things. Um, and then finally, we need our characters to travel down a path that we can follow them. We, need some, we want them to do things that we can root for or understand. So this is an interesting one. 10 Cloverfield Lane versus Frozen. One of the biggest things about a character in a thriller horror movie is when they do stupid things like walk into the basement by themselves or what? I heard a noise. Let me go and investigate instead of call the police or yell for help. Uh, the main character, Michelle in 10 Cloverfield Lane, every choice she makes, I root for because she's resourceful. She's uh, it makes sense. If you don't know what we're talking about, listen to our 10 Cloverfield Lane review versus Frozen, which is Elsa, who's just like, oh, people don't understand. I'm going to run away. And she just runs away without trying to make things right. Some of her choices don't make sense. And we go into that in more detail. 
So I know I threw a lot at you, but Nathan, to sum up, I really do think there is a relationship between story and character. A character's actions are going to drive the plot, and the plot, in turn, is going to shape a character as they go through their arc. So that hopefully sums up and clarifies the story versus character when it comes to analysis. One last note I'll add. Whenever you think about a story, all you need to do is think about a character and a want. Mm. And the obstacles therein forms the plot. But a story is what a character, what a single character or a group of characters want. And that's that's it. I mean, in Western storytelling, I'm sure there are other approaches, but that's storytelling as we've come to know it. Yeah. So thank you for the question, Nathan. Uh, this next question is from Rue S., uh, who I also recently learned wrote a book. What? Under the, yeah, under the pseudonym Selka Fernando Thrush, which is like a I am Lord Voldemort sort of style rewriting of her own name. That's fun. Uh, Rue wrote a book called Banjaxed, Prince of Wolves. Check it out on Amazon. Wow. I'm very interested, Rue. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and get into your question here. If a film can only have one or the other, which is more appealing, writing or cinematography? You want to take this one, Daniel? I'll take this one. This is not, for me, there's no contest. As I mentioned in Nathan's question previous, story is king. So writing is by far more appealing. Um, now, Rue, I should disclaim, what's more appealing, writing or cinematography? Depends on the question. If you're talking about uh, cinematography as an artful filming, obviously writing is better. If you're talking about cinematography as a film having any shots, um, I still think it's writing. Uh, 100% of the time, story always comes first. Because here's the thing. You can have absolutely mediocre camera work with an amazing story, and people will love your movie as long as your camera work doesn't distract from the story. So there's a few examples of films that have mediocre camera work or what I think are kind of basic. Napoleon Dynamite is actually one example. Nothing is flashy in that movie. It's very basic, but the shots help propel the story forward. The story, the writing, the characters, that's what people remember. Um, there's some other examples of movies that have quote-unquote bad camera work that actually do a really good job at accentuating the story. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, Cloverfield, uh, say what you will about hand-held shots. I think they're terrible to watch in theaters. I think they're great to watch or not necessarily bad to watch when you watch them on a smaller screen. And then also there is a film, a very heavy film. If you want to be depressed, I'd recommend giving it a watch. It's <laughs> called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's based on a true story. Guy has a stroke. He has locked-in syndrome where he's completely conscious and coherent in his mind, but nothing else in his body works. He's completely paralyzed except for uh, one eyelid. And it, it's based on that. It's incredibly depressing, incredibly depressing, but uh, worth a watch if you want to reflect on life and just think about how blessed you are to have a functioning body. Um, <laughs> the camera work in some cases is deliberately bad because we're trying to see things from his eyes, which things look really funky because he can't move them. He can't focus on anything consciously. So uh, quote unquote bad camera work can actually service as good story really, really well. And I would argue, I'm sorry, James, pretty much every single animation before the mid 2010s uh, had mediocre camera work because 
it's only been a recent thing where they've been able to try and replicate real world cameras fairly well. I mean, in Wally 2008, I remember they made a big deal about them finally being able to really nail in manual focusing, getting a control, yeah. focusing on one object or another. So us getting to replicate the real world cameras in animation has only been a recent thing. They've had to use various tricks and techniques to try and mimic some of that beforehand. James and I saw Toy Story, the first one, in theaters during COVID when we were in Texas. And I'll be honest yeah. with you, the first few minutes were abysmal. I was like, holy cow, this has aged terribly animation-wise. But you know what happened? The story made me forget about it because my eyes, the longer they saw that animation, the more they got used to it. And the more they got used to it, the more I was just like, I became immersed. The story was just that good. By the end of it, I had completely forgotten that I was watching a 90s animated 3D film. So that's what I have to say about writing or cinematography. You have anything to add, James? No, absolutely not. I think you've tackled that very well. Cool. Speaking of tackling things well, this one sounds like something up your alley, James. Trevor T., which, by the way, also Rue, thank you so much. And wow, big flex. Didn't know you published a book. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, way to go. That. Trevor T. is up next. He asks, what qualities make an animated movie and anime excellent? and How do they differ? So I'll try to keep this brief, but my thinking about it currently are that animated movies should break free from current tropes. And anime is best received whenever it leans in on the tropes and creatively experiments with the tropes therein. So animated movies, we have lots of tropes. We've got the strong, independent female princess protagonist. We've got the animal companion. We've got uh, the big magical gadget that could end the world slash save someone's life slash the MacGuffin, you know, the magical MacGuffin of some kind. Yeah, the McMuffin. <laughs> the McMuffin, delicious. As I've mm, heard of it eggs. referred to. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But let's look at The Incredibles and how the themes and plots of that break totally free from your typical, quote-unquote, typical animated movie. The Incredibles talks about genocide. It talks about affairs. It talks about murder. It talks about family as a whole and what happens to family whenever it falls apart. It talks about depending on one another, uh, specifically between a husband and wife. Yeah. This is one of the first big animated movies that really blew away all the all the tropes that people originally had perceived animated movies to have. And that's why I think it's excellent. It's got good writing. It has good cinematography actually, now that I think about it. True. Uh we talk about the the rule of 3 in a lot of Brad Bird's camera work uh mm. and how we tell a small story within one shot moving to three different objects and three story beats. But anyway, The Incredibles is excellent. Uh, I'm always going to wax philosophical about The Incredibles because it breaks three of, free of those themes and plots. Mm. Anime, on the other hand, people look for the tropes and they want to see how they handle them. So we've got the optimistic go-getter protagonist who will do anything to reach their goals and power up and get stronger. Yeah. And the power levels always get blown way out of proportion. And the character almost always makes boneheaded decisions and always trusts people too much. 
Enter Attack on Titan. Oh, the way yeah. that the protagonist is handled in that movie, <laughs> sorry, in that series, is so fascinating to me. I'm not a huge anime fan. I'm more of an anime skeptic than anything. <laughs> yeah. But Attack on Titan certainly deals with the protagonist problem and the power creep problem really well and leans into those tropes and says, hey, anime viewer, I know you're expecting the protagonist to be like this. Actually, he's going to be more like this. So he kind of fits into your idea of the I will do anything to get what I want, but not in the way you really expect it. That's why that's how I think good anime is made. They do a brilliant thing, too, where they take the exact same thing you were talking about with power creep with a protagonist wanting to get stronger. They're like, yeah, 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 get stronger. And then they go, wait, but is that a good thing? And they do it in such a great way. And I'm not going to I'm not going to spoil anything, but they do. They flip that question and you're like, oh, what have we done? It's so good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the amount of plot twists in Attack on Titan, let me tell you, that's that's something that anime watchers expect and Attack on Titan delivers. So that's how I would I would rate and measure things. Not the anime expert. I've probably seen 10 anime all the way through, not all of them being more than one season long. So thank you so much for your question, Trevor. I appreciate you reaching out to the show and hope to hear from you again soon. Yeah. This next question I want to hand off to my good friend Daniel is from Sam R. Thank you, Sam. What do you think is the next step in film or where do you think film is going? A great question and a big one and one that I don't think either I nor James are going to be fully qualified to answer. So allow me to be a bit more casual than I am critical because um, this is too big for my small ape brain. Uh, <laughs> I do see several tension points in film that need addressing. One is physical, more to do with marketing, and that is theaters. Um, back in the day, way back in the day, roughly maybe 30s and 40s, uh, film companies could also own theaters. And ultimately, that was deemed to be too monopolous, and so they were split up. Now the way it works is if you ever wonder why your movie theater ticket is expensive, part of the reason for that is theater owners really don't see any profits from people actually watching movies. Most of that goes directly to movie companies. So instead, theaters profit off of food sales and candy. And now more recently, due to the rise and fall of MoviePass, uh, subscription services. Ah. So yeah, you can go to AMC theaters and be an A-list whatever and watch three movies, I think, per month based on that one ludicrous fee. And that's a whole nother topic, but in some ways, the theater experience is kind of not as enjoyable. Uh, you go into a theater, you paid for your ticket, and you're greeted by expensive popcorn and items that vie for your attention. You stand in line to get a ticket if you haven't already. You go and sit down in the movie theater, which maybe hasn't started yet. You're inundated with local ads, and you're inundated with movie trailer ads. And by the time you actually watch the movie, the hype, at least for me, is somewhat died down because I, in this animated movie I'm so excited to see, I've seen a bunch of cringy animated movie ads beforehand. And now suddenly it bums me out. And then I sit through this entire movie, which may or may not be worth my time. And depending on if it's a Marvel movie, I sit through the credits and I walk out of the theater and I think to myself, good golly, what did I? 
that was a lot of work for just watching one movie. And not to mention something that's become incredible, increasingly prevalent, which I just don't like, is I think there is an arrogance about film. You see this with what I call movie speak. Uh, if you've seen the animated or if you've seen the AMC promo with Nicole Kidman, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where <laughs> she's like, <clears throat> filmmaking transforms us. It makes us feel more that we are, but takes us to places we haven't yet been. It transcends us. It allows us to connect deeply. You hear this a lot at the Oscars, too. Movies speak. We talk about how great movies are. I don't like it, and I'm a film guy. And I'm like, no, movies aren't like, yeah, they're awesome. I love telling stories, but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's get <laughs> our heads out of our butt for a moment and realize that Movies are seen as an entertainment venue. They're not seen as a form of transcendence. Um, so let's wrap this back around to the question. Uh, where film is going, I'm not sure. Um, COVID made us say, theaters are bad. Maybe, are the movie theaters going to be extinct? I don't think they will, but I do think they need improving. We said the same thing in the 1930s when the economy went down and the, dice, the dust bowl or the dust bin was happening. Uh, and everyone the dustbin is a fictional setting uh, <laughs> that exists in a fantasy cowboy land and is not a historical event. Sorry. Thank you for the legalese, James. Um, the Dust Bowl was it called? You got it. You got it. Dust Bowl. I, I, it sounded like a Super Bowl thing and I didn't want to. I, I was scared. <laughs> um, Before the Super Bowl is the Dust Bowl <laughs> where the two dirtiest, rowdiest teams okay. fight together and kick <laughs> dust on each other's faces. But Sam... Um, so I am worried. I, I, it's not really a thing that I think film is going. I'm just worried about movie theaters. But where film is going is, oh, man, I need, I need to be careful of how I navigate this. I'm worried about mainstream film because I'm seeing social media have an almost direct impact on it and where the line between art and propaganda is becoming increasingly blurred. You're seeing similar conversations where people are talking about how uh, we're having less nuanced conversation. The art of civil discourse is kind of dying. If I go up to you, James, and I say, I like puppies, and you say, I hate them and think they should die. Well, the civil way to do it would say, okay, well, I disagree, but can you tell me more? Like, I'm just genuinely curious to know where you're coming from on that. And I think everyone- You bet. Let me send you a, let me send you a Huffington Post article. <laughs> Actually, let me let me send you a Daily Wire article, uh, either or, really. Yeah. Uh, let me send you one of those articles about why puppies should die and why anyone who believes that puppies shouldn't die should die as well. Now, here's the thing. I keep saying here's the thing a lot. I edit these freaking episodes, and I say it all the gosh dang time. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> here's the sitch. Everyone agrees, I think, that people should be more genuinely curious about the other side. However, I think what few of us are willing to admit is we would rather it happen to us than us make it happen to someone else. I want someone to ask me about my opinions, but heaven forbid I ask someone about their opinions because they're political party X, Y, and Z. They're stupid. They don't care. They're clearly narrow-minded. And the way things are worded just bothers me. Like there's a Disney documentary on YouTube made by someone and it went into detail about why Disney's a corrupt organization. And the way they worded things made me genuinely worried because they were saying, oh, 
Disney, you know, they're corrupt, bank, morally bankrupt company run by a bunch of ruthless executives. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You're saying the executives are ruthless. Do you have evidence to back that up? Do you know these executives personally? Or do you know their names? Not once did they ever mention the executives' names. Not once did they mention evidence why they think the executives are ruthless. They are playing into the narrative that if you're an executive of a big company, that means you're inherently ruthless and money-hungry. And I'm not saying that's completely false, but I'm also not saying, I'm not saying that's completely true either. And the fact that you can get away with just saying that makes me really worried. People are not very critical about what they watch. And it's starting to hurt our films because we're portraying themes and films as less nuanced. We're not trusting the audience as much with themes. Instead, we are saying this person good, this person bad, this person bad will always be bad and never be good. And this person good will never be tempted by the bad or be corrupted because they are obviously good. And also there's a, there's a redirection of bad hmm. as well with some of the recent movie plots we've been absorbing Thor love and thunder and Dr. Strange hmm. to name a few quickly redirects the badness and kind of banishes it to the nether realm and says, but no one's really bad. And the same goes for Frozen 2. The guy that's bad, oh, he's been dead for three generations. We just gotta, we just gotta come together and fix this wrong and not direct the blame to anybody. Mm. That is an equally egregious uh, crime yeah. that some films are committing. And the more I've learned about myself recently, the more I've realized I'm actually really passionate about influence and I'm a, this is an answer for another question so I'm going to save it but I think I think a lot of people don't know how film and narratives can influence them and as a result they're not careful about what they absorb and so my worry Sam to bring this background and finally maybe answer your question what is the next step in film I think the next step in film is us acknowledging the deficiencies of nuanced writing and seeking to improve it I think the next step in film is to acknowledge what's been done in the past and instead of ignoring it and trying to reinvent the wheel, let's look at what we've done and say, okay, why did we do this? Why is this thing here? You know, G.K. Chesterton, the, there's an amazing parable of the fence where if you're building a road and you come to a fence, some people rip up the fence and continue building their road. Other people refuse to rip up the fence until they learn the purpose for why it was built. There are reasons why some things are tropey in films. There are reasons why some things are cliche. So let's not devolve our storytelling into fourth wall breaking and quirkiness and ecstatic ADHD quirk fests and funny and humorous because we are not justifying film existing. We are distracting the audience from what really matters in the real world by pandering to their comfort, by pandering to their need of entertainment, and not pandering to their need of enriching story that can help make them laugh, but can also help challenge them where they need to. Can I alley-oop Sam's question to you, Daniel, and ask it in a different way? Okay. What's some technical stuff in film that you feel like is on the up and up mm. in terms of, I don't know, cameras, CG? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the technical stuff. What's the future there? 
technology makes it easier than ever for someone to create a cinematic level production. Um, you and I are very familiar, James, with free freeware. Um, it is astounding to me at just how much you can do with free sources that are available online. Blender is a 3D animation program that a few years ago, it's kind of laughable. It was very quirky. You could get amazing results, but you know, it's, it's free. So you don't select something by left clicking. You select something by right clicking. You, you know, there's different hotkeys that people familiar with other software weren't familiar with. DaVinci Resolve was this weird kind of inept software. It was kind of quirky, cost you over 2K. It was ridiculous. But let's look at them now. Blender is a very versatile and powerful 3D animation software and video editor and 2D animation renderer and compositor that is starting to and in some ways exceed certain aspects of other 3D softwares. Unreal Engine is a game development engine that has already been used in The Mandalorian to create these live backgrounds that are rivaling and exceeding green screens. And then you look at DaVinci Resolve that is now free. Free. And it has so many tools that I've begun to explore where you can denoise your footage. You can add le the lens flares are beautiful that you can add into it. And if you want the full version, it's only 300 bucks. It's a free software and it's amazing. And then you look at, goodness, cameras are becoming cheaper and better and the excuse of poor art is becoming less and less. Even art that has bad camera work is becoming less and less because your iPhone camera has a higher quality than the cameras used to make Star Wars. That's ridiculous. But it's in your pocket now. So the future of film is scary, but there's a lot of potential because the worst part and best part of film these days is anyone can grab a camera and make a movie. Anyone can sit down say something, say their opinions on something, and upload it to a platform. The platform that James and I use, Anchor, which is, this is not sponsored at all. This is, it's a free platform distribution software that automatically uh, distributes it onto Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all these podcast platforms. That's free. James and I don't spend a dime on that. That is free. And that's scary. But it can also be a really cool thing. Because there are some people whose voices could never be heard that now can be. Readily accessible for next to nothing. So there's a lot of things I'm worried about, but there's also a lot of hope. And I think for you guys listening that want to make a difference, there's nothing stopping you. Just grab a camera and film. Very well said. Thank you. Our next question isn't, wasn't really a question that was submitted. This was actually an email that was sent to us. Abby F., you know who you are. You sent us this amazing, incredibly thoughtful email. We don't really get stuff like this. And I'm going to share with you guys a brief mm, description, something that she said uh, that we're kind of making into a question because we think it needs to be answered. Abby was talking about how she sees that uh, better storytelling and better structure can be an asset to marketing commercial materials. But there's a lot of motivation behind some of the marketing of just, hey, let's just make more money or buy more products. And uh, it's starting to rub her the wrong way. 
especially as, quote, I'm making things where the motivation is simply for more money or a larger reach. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but feels like the art of storytelling is constantly at risk of being usurped by bigger and bigger business models as we live in an economically competitive society instead of nature of changing and challenging culture or connection. And the sentence for this that we're turning into a question is she says, I've been pondering the question of where storytelling truly belongs within the world of marketing and the kind of society we have today. So James, of the two of us, um, we do have some experience with marketing. I had a concentration in it, but James actually has actual marketing experience. Uh, And so James, in the words and the spirit of Abby's question, where does storytelling truly belong within the world of marketing in our society today? I think all marketing is a form of storytelling, which is why I think it's very dangerous to let marketing companies be in charge of the way your film is perceived by the public before it releases. Abby also mentioned that she has marketing experience, so she's coming at it from that angle, and I really appreciate that angle because, Abby, you're saying a lot of things that I'm feeling. Mm. The stuff that's making me sad about Disney, you know? is one of those things is the way they market things. So my main bullet point here is that you can only make a movie if your movies sell. And that's why Disney is pulling out all the stops in their, Dis- in their marketing techniques. I mentioned before Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, now that I have the stats up, made $50.7 million globally. on a And, and they had a 20... $22 million budget. They made $77.5 million. And the marketing was great because they sold us on a concept, not on a plot, not on a cast, not on specific story beats or jokes. We've been talking about Thor Love and Thunder a fair amount, and I know some of you like it. But this movie sold me on plot, a cast, and many story beats. After I watched the movie, I watched several trailers for Thor Love and Thunder. And the Guardians of the Galaxy, they're plastered all over every single trailer. But they're only in the movie for about six or seven minutes. Mm. That's not a spoiler for Thor. It's just the way the movie starts. But that's a primary selling point for this film. And as a result, my perception of what the story is going to be has already been pulled out from underneath me. I love my Guardians of the Galaxy. I want to see more of my Star-Lord. I want to see more of my Rocket Raccoon. They're not in this movie for even one whole act. Mm. And as a result, the, the story is not what I expected it. The movie itself is already lackluster, which you will hear in our review. Yes. But it gives away a lot in the movie. Uh in the marketing campaign. The same goes for Frozen 2. The first trailer for Frozen 2 sold us on a concept, showed us some cool shots, some interesting animation. Daniel and I were both mildly interested. Yeah. I remember talking about it with our friend Milan like as well. This is going to be really cool. This is going to be a cool movie. We didn't watch trailers 2, 3, or 4, or any of the scenes afterwards because we were already sold on the concept. And I'm not saying everyone should just be sold on the concept, but I think that that's the best way to maintain the integrity of the story is by selling us on the concept, not on the plot, 
not on the court, the story beats, not on the cast. Look at Smallfoot. The amount of <laughs> celebrities in Smallfoot. They put LeBron James on it, probably just for marketing purposes. I heard he's the funniest character. I've never seen Smallfoot, but I heard LeBron James's character is the funniest. But like, we know that LeBron James was brought in just for marketing purposes. That's all I know about the movie. I don't know the concept. I just know LeBron James and Zendaya are in it. And that's what movie marketing has become today. Mm. And it's, it's wrong. Yeah. So much of what you said is resonating with me as well. Um, I think that if you can imagine a path for a moment, the ultimate destination you should be getting to is the, uh, is the story. And marketing is a great way. Imagine story being the story that you want is buried in a forest. Marketing is a pathway to it. It's well-worn, it's approachable, and it makes it easier for you to access the story. It's the selling point of the story. It makes the story approachable. But instead, what we have done, to answer your question, Abby, on the relationship between the two, is we flipped it. Story is now the path to marketing. Absolutely. Why should I watch Thor Love and Thunder? Well, according to the marketing, Thor is in it. There's some funny moments. There's some VFX moments. There's Guardians of the Galaxy. There's Natalie Portman. There's Taika Waititi. There's that one character, Korg, from that one movie you like, Ragnarok. There's Valkyrie. There are some raunchy moments. There are some funny moments. There's some romantic moments. There's some action moments. There's some evil, scary moments with Christian Bale as the new MCU villain. And when you see the movie, you realize all they're doing is connecting all those dots to form some excuse for why they should be connected. And that excuse is the story. I think in its purest form, storytelling should be, to some degree, inherently uncomfortable. It should challenge you to a certain degree. It should make you think. No one remembers Smallfoot. No <laughs> one remembers. Uh, few people are talking about the Emoji movie. Few people are talking about the original Minions movie because all of those had to do with marketing. And once the film was released, it's done. Most film companies don't realize that movies don't just get made and get watched. They continue to be marinated in the consciousness of our society for years to come. That's what Star Wars did. That's what Indiana Jones did. That's what all these other classic movies I can't think of off the top of my head right now did. They implanted themselves in our consciousness and they said, no, we have ideas that we're exploring that you need to think more about. I think with Disney, I love them and I hate them. Uh, Disney has themselves in an interesting situation, but an understandable one. Disney has to answer to shareholders and investors. And it's kind of like, I don't know. It, when I'm sitting around with kids and they're like, Daniel, tell us a story. I love telling stories. And uh, I really enjoy just telling them. But there's a freedom I experience when I tell a story to kids that you don't really realize you have until one of their parents walks in and sits down and listens in on the story. Suddenly, I have to be a bit more careful. Not that I get too crazy with my stories, but there are things that I realize, oh shoot, probably shouldn't say that, or I should word this in a way where the parent doesn't get upset. Does that limit me? Well, yeah, obviously, but that's not always a bad thing. If I wanted to make something raunchy, for example, and the parent walked in, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe that thing should never have been said. But if I wanted to say something that was challenging that the parent didn't like, suddenly the parent's the one that gets to decide if I should say that or not. And I think sometimes that Disney, if I want to be optimistic, 
Disney's that person that wants to tell fun stories. But then there's parents that are watching in and listening in that maybe they don't want them saying certain things. Some of those things shouldn't be said. Some of those things need to be said. And I think Disney always likes to play it safe with their films. Now, it's easy to justify that. It's easy to throw that away. But if you think about it, there are hundreds. No, there are thousands of creatives who make a living, who pay for their families, who pay for their spouses, who have secure financial lives because they're playing it safe. Yes. Does that make Disney inherently bad? Does that make them an evil corporate conglomerate with no heart? I don't think so. I think it's far more nuanced than that. There are people's lives that are being sustained because of complacent storytelling. However, the culture is suffering for it. So, who's the bad guy? I don't know if we can say. I think there's issues that need to be addressed, but I don't think making one person the bad guy and attacking that one straw man is going to fix things. I think it's going to exacerbate a new problem you didn't realize until you start bringing it down. So, when you bring down Goliath, be careful that you don't take the people down that have stood on his shoulders as well, you know, because there's a lot more people than you'd expect. That got me thinking, Daniel, talking about the parents and their feedback with Disney, because you have said before that buying a movie ticket is like a vote mm-hmm. saying, I want to see more of this because that's the way movies have changed. Yeah. If it does well, then you need to make a sequel. Yeah. That's not how it always has been, but that's how it is now. And it makes me realize that our democracy is really influencing the way that we consume media Hmm. because people believe that um, trailers and marketing material, social media bumpers and things, they need to lead us to vote for their movie. They need to sell it on us in every single way. And if anything makes us uncomfortable, then it doesn't have our vote anymore. Yeah. And we're going to tell all of the other parents at our co-op not to go see this movie, not to take their kids to this movie. We're going to write letters to the corporation that made this movie and tell them to take it down. And this TV show makes me uncomfortable, so we should stop making that because I don't want my kids to accidentally stumble on it. Just an observation, but I'm, I'm really wondering, and maybe this will come in a conversation down the line, Daniel, but I'm really wondering how democracy is influencing the way that we watch movies and the way that we approve or disprove of movies. It's like, think of Iron Man because everyone looks to Iron Man as like, Oh, that was the great movie. Of, and that that's what started the MCU. You don't, <laughs> chances are you have no idea what a big risk Iron Man really was. Robert Downey Jr. Had a life of addiction to drugs and the way the movie industry works, the way I understand it at least, is um, in order for an actor to be in your film, they need to be insured. So if something bad happens to the actor, who's the one that pays for it? The insurance company. No one wanted to insure Robert Downey Jr. No one. No one was willing to take that bet. John Favreau said, I don't know if it was John Favreau or Mel Gibson, but there was someone that said, I'm going to personally stake my money on this, that I will insure him for Iron Man. And John Favreau said, yeah, I want this guy. And part of that was on them for taking that risk. 
part of it was on Robert Downey Jr. It was a small film. I this could be a rumor. I I've heard there wasn't even a script. It was just a series of bullet points they wanted each scene to convey. So most of it was improvised. But wow, it was a risk. They put a lot on the line for that movie, and it did tremendously well. And now. I see the MCU doing the same thing. They took relative unknowns. Chris Hemsworth was a relative unknown when he was cast as Thor. One of the biggest roles he was ever in was he played um, Captain Kirk's dad in the first Star Trek movie in 2009, in the J.J. Abrams movie. That was his biggest role. Two years later, he's swinging his hammer into theaters as Thor. Chris Evans, one of the most notable things he ever did was Human Torch in those Fantastic Four movies, which now are no longer the worst Fantastic Four movies, but back in the day they were. They were and these... one of Seven Evil Exes in Scott Pilgrim. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, but he was a relative unknown, and then he became Captain America. Now, look at the MCU. They try and still cast some unknown at people, but that's not really the selling point. The selling point is the franchise. The selling point is... Look at what we become. I'll be honest with you guys. Do I hate the MCU for being that way? Part of me wishes I was there. Part of me wishes that I made something into a massive franchise. But franchises are going to have difficult, different struggles than indie filmmakers. Um, but sometimes, honestly, just like what I said with the financial stability, sometimes I envy them. Sometimes I really do. So I think the real question is, which sounds better? Would you rather make a lot of stable income and not be proud of what you make or be proud of what you make and constantly put your own wallet at risk? Sometimes my answer will change depending on one of those two. Abby, thank you so much for this thought-provoking question. Yeah. We're looking forward to hearing from you again soon. We really appreciate your feedback and your unique perspective on things. It's, mm. It means a lot. Yes. Up next, we're getting into some more podcast-related conversations about where we came from, podcast production, that sort of thing. So, segue. Emma S. asks, what was the biggest challenge you had to face before and after the podcast's official release? Uh, yeah, not many people ask questions about our podcast like this. This is fun. Uh, I would say for me, one of the biggest challenges is really just not knowing how our questions would be received. Um, the hardest part about starting something is you have no idea how it's going to affect other people. James and I, you know, we had these really good talks, but we didn't know if other people thought they were good. <laughs> we just knew that we enjoyed them personally. We had no idea. So that was before the podcast official release was not knowing how our conversations would be received. I'd say after the podcast has come out, I think the biggest challenge is not knowing what your guys' perspective is. Because as the podcast, as I'm, James and I are both executive producers on the podcast, we spearhead the podcast creation. You can see that in the credits. It's really just two names, James Newton and Daniel Carpenter. <laughs> That's We do everything here so far, and we host it, and we pick movies we want to review. But I have no idea how you, the listener, someone listening to this podcast, I have no idea how you perceive us. I have no idea how, what you think of our conversations. I don't know the extent of the value, if any, that our conversations add. The only glimpses we get into those conversations and the, that 
reception is when you guys go out of your way to tell us that you liked it. Yeah. But how many of you like it and you don't say anything? How many of you hate listening to us and watch because of morbid interest? I have no idea. And that's, for me, the biggest challenge is trying to put myself in the listener's shoes, but knowing I'll never be able to fully do that. You know, it's a blessing and a curse. So that's what I would say. How about you, James? Yeah, that's a good point. Knowing what you guys think and not just saying you guys should review this movie next yeah. would be great. We do love your recommendations and we still have all of them written down from previous seasons and we're going over them. Mm. But knowing what you guys think about the podcast the structure, the way we talk about things, it would help a lot to know. Um, and I know this is a casually critical podcast. We try to keep things casual and not really structure things too much, no. but it would help some notes knowing about how we can carry our conversations better to make them more enjoyable to you and more insightful for yeah. you. I was going to say before we started the podcast, I think we had some trouble figuring out what the podcast was. Mm. We knew we wanted to talk about film, but we weren't sure how that was going to look. And it's still changing. So it's still a challenge, to be honest. But after the podcast release, I would say getting the word out and figuring out how we can distinguish ourselves from other film review media. Mm. And that's another one we're still navigating and we really rely on you guys to help with. Yeah. Because we're doing the best we can. Yeah. And we're having fun doing it. <laughs> but any feedback is welcome, guys. And we don't want to just be that YouTuber you go to to check out the first five minutes of their review of the new Marvel movie. Right. We want to be a more than that, which we'll dive into in another question. But Daniel, you were going to say something else. Yes, I was. I think another challenge I'm realizing, <clears throat> many people don't know this, but I think just the simple fact that we have a face for Casually Critical, uh, e.g. our um, Instagram, our Facebook, um, we don't ask you to submit your requests to, you know, my Instagram or James's personal Instagram. We ask you to submit yours to a third party, our podcast Instagram. I've noticed that simply by us um, adopting this persona of the podcast, having an official face of the podcast, uh, there's been some hesitation. There's been a few people that have come up to me and said, hey, you should review this. And I'm like, that's a great suggestion. Why don't you send us a DM on Instagram so we don't forget about that? And they say, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to, but I'm just really nervous. I'm like, what makes you nervous? It's just us. You know it's James and Daniel. Uh, you know, for some people that don't know you, James, personally, they at least know me. I'm like, you know, 50% of the podcast. <laughs> and you're the scary one. I am. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> you know. <laughs> ah. um, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but if I could guess, I think just it makes us feel different makes us feel bigger perhaps when you're submitting your inquiry to a podcast and not a person. There is something that's lost there in terms of approachability that uh, is intriguing to me. We're not even that big of a podcast, but the fact that people feel that way, it's interesting. I, I don't know how to reconcile that, you know? And as the person that runs the Instagram page, just from an like a structure and organization standpoint, it's easy for me to just keep all your feedback organized on Instagram. So yeah. that's why we like it better that way. So those of you that DM'd us on Instagram or commented on a story or 
DM'd us on Facebook. Great. Even you can comment. You can comment on our posts and stuff too. That actually helps our SEO. Helps us get seen by other people that wouldn't ordinarily see us. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. that's why all that exists. It's because we're preparing for it to be something bigger than ourselves, which is yeah. has always been our our hope and our trajectory. Trajectory. Yeah. But it hasn't informed every decision we've made here. Speaking of informing the decisions that we make, uh, Daniel R. has a question where he goes into and asks, he doesn't go into, but he does ask, what was the movie slash TV show that got you into movies and TV? Great segue, Daniel, and great question, (laughs) Daniel. Other Daniel R. Right. The movies that got me into films were the Lord of the Rings trilogy. For obvious reasons, I love fantasy and I love fiction Mm. and I love grand stories and I love characters that you can root for. And I love globetrotting odysseys. And this does all that. And we've talked about Lord of the Rings before in this podcast, actually, so you can check that out for more. The other one that I want to give a shout out to is Inception. It was the first movie that I didn't understand on the first watch and appreciated more on the second watch. And I realized I didn't know before then that movies could do that to you and make you really think and ponder things, not just about the plot, but about the themes within. Hmm. What about you, Daniel? So uh, for better or worse, I can't really remember a single piece of media that influenced me into doing film. Um, Part of my story is I I grew up just playing around with my parents' camera. Uh, But there was a film that defined me as a filmmaker kind of going forward after I saw it. And that was actually Lord of the Rings. It was the fellowship of the ring. (laughs) Um, I wasn't allowed to watch PG 13 movies when I was younger than 13. Uh, My parents were pretty adherent to that, but Lord of the Rings was the exception. They said, Daniel, if you read the book, then we'll let you see the movie. So if you watch, if you read the first book, as soon as you're done with that, we'll allow you to see it. And I remember I wasn't allowed to see these movies. And so I would just make things up in my head about what they could be. There was this anticipation of like this excitement. And honestly, when I turned 13, most movies kind of fell short of that. In all honesty, episode three (laughs) of star Wars was the one star Wars movie I hadn't seen, but I read the graphic novel. I read the comic books. I did all this stuff. And I was excited and nervous about, would this be too much? Would this be more than I could handle? It wasn't. I played a lot of graphic and gory uh, flash games in school. (laughs) So I was desensitized to a lot of it. But with Lord of the Rings. Exploding stick people's heads with (laughs) AK-47s. That'll do it. Exactly. How did you know? Um, But with Lord of the Rings, there was an anticipation because my parents had a crappy, you know, uh, cuboid, girthy TV at the time. But my grandparents had this nice HD TV with surround sound. And so my dad and I, my, it was just my dad and me, drove up to my grandparents' house. And my grandparents were there and we all sat in front of their TV and watched it on the relative big screen and <laughs> the relatives relative big screen. And I remember this dark screen and then the voiceover by Kate Blanchett. And then <laughs> we cut to Lord of the Rings and it was the first and one of the few movies still that I had huge expectations for. And it didn't just match. It delivered on a constant quality And I remember being thoroughly inspired by how the camera moved, how Peter Jackson would film and execute these big moments. And all of my movies going forward, I wanted nothing more than to emulate that. And I think in a weird way to this day, 
it still causes me to emulate that, to help people be as excited for my stuff as I was for Peter Jackson's stuff and for them to feel as fulfilled. That was a huge impact on me. Daniel, if I may speak for you about this question, could I also say that I think Chronicle is a very large influence to your style and genre that you tend to lean towards? Huh. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah. Chronicle, for those of you who don't know, is a 2012 um, found footage film. Found footage is the same genre as Cloverfield. It's basically from the perspective of a camera. It's about these three teenagers that get superpowers. I suppose, in a way, it's actually a film that most people disliked that I actually really liked. Um, it's a great coming-of-age film told from an interesting perspective and an interesting genre bashing, if you will. But it really has a lot to say on, on power. And it felt similarly to me when I saw the first two Hunger Games movies, the surreal feeling of people, younger people, teenagers, killing each other um, out of this kind of depraved section of humanity. And that, stood with, that stuck with me. This is before Michael B. Jordan became popular. He was in Chronicle as well. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I, I don't know. It, yeah, I think you're right. I think less so about the execution and more about just the tone, the feeling. Um, I think that stood out as well. So thank you for recalling that into my brain, James. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Our next question is asked by Sophia A. Uh, she asks, why did you start this podcast? So maybe at the risk of talking for both of us, um, James and I noticed that we had a lot of really fun conversations about film, which is not necessarily new. I think a lot of people can enjoy talking about film, but James and I felt like we had something to add in terms of what we were talking about. James is a very rare friend, if I can dote on him for a moment, in the sense that oh gosh, we, we not only see things in film very similarly, but we also put a lot of value on the same things. Character, story structure, story analysis, and also certain stories that should or shouldn't be told and how they influence other people, which we talked about already in this episode. Finding that bond with someone over not only are we passionate about film, but we're passionate about the same things in film really helped bring us closer as friends and really brought a lot of specialized value to our conversations and our insights. And this podcast, <laughs> I'm learning new things about James through our podcast. I mean, when we were doing our episode on the Batman, I learned that James does not hold superhero movies quite in the same light as me and that's not necessarily a good or bad thing but it is a different thing and it's amazing what you can learn about someone through your conversations with them about a seemingly innocuous entertainment so we saw the value in that uh we love to rip apart bad movies we love to praise good movies and learn more about each other in the process um I want to ask the ne next question because I feel like this is starting to become our why. Yeah, they kind of bleed into each other. Yeah, Sophia also asks, what's one thing you hope people gain from tuning in? Mm. And something I've been learning about during the production of this podcast with you, Daniel, is that we both have a hard and unshakable passion for expecting more from the media that people consume mm. and expecting more from the consumer. 
and their discernment therein. And I feel like that's starting to become our mission statement because we both care a lot about making story meaningful and giving dignity to the viewer and trusting them with information and also giving them an opportunity to think about the things that they take in. We complain a lot about the MCU, and the reason is because we want people to think about the things that they're taking in and not just to let it pass them by as another movie or another TV series. Because ultimately, we do become the media that we consume and we do become the people that we interact with. And because of that, there's always dialogue going on between you and a movie. Sometimes people just aren't listening to that dialogue between themselves and the movie. And I think, Daniel, I think you and I both hold strongly to that and want people to see that. And I think that's becoming why I want this podcast to exist and why I want it to keep going. Yeah, that's really well said. You always have a good way of articulating. Um, Thanks. If I can put maybe a bit more specificity on your words, um, what I hope people gain from tuning in is, as you said, but a bit more in layman's terms, I want people, I want you, the listener, to think more critically about film. Um, as I said, one thing I'm learning about myself is I am big on influence. I am big on who influences me. Um, I'm very specific and very particular about the people in my friend group specifically the people that I keep in my inner circle. The reason for that is you become the people and the thing that which you hold the closest to you. And uh, that's, I think, why social media is having such an effect is because it's physically with us all the time. It's that one friend we go to when we're upset, when we're happy, when we don't know how to spend our time, we decide to spend it on the socials. And I don't want to rant too much about it because I do think it's useful. I use social media for portfolio work and staying connected with people. I know James does too. There is a value there. However, it's a tool. A hammer can be a great way to build a nice chair. It can also be a murder weapon. So be very careful how you use <laughs> that tool. And film is no different. If anything, I would argue film and media needs to be held to a higher standard because I can I have a message as an artist that I want to communicate. But when I dress that argument, when I dress that theme with a bunch of fun or a bunch of really beautiful shots, that makes it more palatable and it lets people's guard down. And I think some people let their guard down, but they never bring it back up. They walk out of a movie, and one of the most alarming things I ever hear people tell me is when I ask, why did you like that movie? They say, I don't know, because it was good. That terrifies me. There's always a reason why you like something. There's always a reason why something resonates with you. It might discover you learning more about yourself to feel that way. It might be you learning more about film. One thing I realized during my time was I mentioned not too long ago that uh, I've been making movies since I was four. I was okay at filmmaking before I went to college to study film. I was really good at it, better than most of my peers. I went to college, and after college, I was surprised at how much people credited my college experience with my knowledge of film versus my personal experience. They said, oh, well, Daniel, you're the brainy one. You went to film college. 
yes, college did teach me a lot, but it taught me more about how to practically make movies than it did about how to analyze them. You don't need a college degree to analyze film the way that we do on this podcast. You don't. There is plenty of ways for you to get an education in film. There are YouTube video essays. James and I binge those a lot, maybe too much. I watched one that was two, three-hour parts. It was ridiculous. But when you listen to a bunch of critics, you start to learn to say, okay, I agree with this. I don't agree with this. Why don't I agree with this? Let me try and articulate that. Let me learn more about myself. Um, There's a casualness to the criticism we consume. I think that's why we call this podcast Casually Critical. Because criticism can be very casual, but it can also be very powerful. That's why we have another word for it besides talking. It's criticism. There's a deliberateness to what we say. There's a passion behind why we say it, but we can say it without needing to spend four years at a place to learn more about it. But it can help. Guys, that ends the questions that you've submitted us. It's been a long episode, but man, I've had a lot of fun doing this. As have I. What James and I have talked about prior to prepping for this episode as kind of a fun little icing on the cake is we have actually prepared ourselves questions. I have a question prepared for James that he has not read beforehand or prepared. James has a question for me that I don't know about, nor have I prepared for it. And I'm actually going to kickstart us off by asking you a question, James, something a bit more broad. We've had a lot of questions talked about films and rankings We don't have a lot of questions talking more philosophically, especially about criticism. So my question for you, James, is, well, this is in the same vein as what we were just talking about. Do you find criticizing art to be valuable? Why or why not? I think saying that art is completely subjective is a fallacy. Thank you. (laughs) We've talked about before, and I'll say it again. There are certain benchmarks that are used to measure movies, animated movies, live action movies, graphic novels, books, paintings, all of it. Abstract art can be appreciated, but I appreciate a lot more when I read the plaque and understand why they made it. Mm. There has to be something there that I can hold on to. There has to be a message, something being sent out to me that I can digest and ponder. I think criticism is valuable because it makes us think about ourselves. It makes us think about the world that we're in. It makes, it makes us think about the people around us. At the risk of sounding like that AMC advertisement, <laughs> it develops empathy. Oh, that was worth far to... better than the AMC advertisement could ever hope to. <laughs> right. And, and a movie that doesn't do that well I feel like is a worse movie than a movie that helps you put yourself in the shoes of the characters they're in. Mm. So there are plenty of ways to measure movies. And I think criticism is important because as we said before, we need to make smart decisions about the media that we consume. I know it's really easy to just let media happen to you, but it should be the other way around. And that's all I'll say because I feel like we covered it so well on that last question, yeah. but thank you for that. I have to, I have to add my, my two cents because you brought up a very triggering thing, which is people saying that art is purely subjective. 
Oh boy. Oh boy. I, Daniel answers his own question. I need to be, Ladies need, and gentlemen, it's Screaming <laughs> in the Dark, version three. Screaming in the Dark. Give it up for Daniel Carpenter. Woo! Woo! What a throwback. Man. Welcome back to Screaming in the Dark, where I, Daniel Carpenter, engage the, um, what's the word? The echo chamber of myself. Thank you for having me, Daniel. You're welcome, Daniel. Uh, what brought you in today? Well, uh, James just uh, said something that I wanted to talk about as well, because I can't just let James answer one question directed solely at James. Oh, interesting, Daniel. Tell me more. Okay. When people say, now we got to be serious. When people say that art is entirely subjective, I think what concerns me is the logical, the logical end result of that is art is random. If you like it, fine. If you don't, well, that's on you. That's bull crap. That's absolute bull crap. That's a turd blanket of a statement. Art is subjective in a sense, but it is a bunch of objective decisions used to elicit very specific subjective experiences. So yes, art can be subjective. There is a component that is subjective, but that is very objectively brought about. Do I want to show you a man kicking a dog who hates dogs? Great. I am showing you that with the hope and anticipation that you will not like that man. Oh, but Daniel, what if I hate dogs? Okay, yes, there are exceptions, but I can safely assume that me showing you the man doing that is going to cause you to feel a specific subjective way about that man. Now, let's say I have the man kick a dog because he had a traumatic experience in which he lost his young baby daughter to a feral dog that got loose and killed her in front of his eyes. Wow. Your subjective perception has now objectively changed because I introduced to you a very specific piece about this man that is causing you to feel a way that I can safely assume is one of sympathy. You may not like the fact that the man kicks dogs, but now you understand that he doesn't just kick dogs because he hates them. He has a very specific reason for doing so. So I know I kind of took things from one to 10 there, but just because you might subjectively feel a certain way about this fictional character I made up for you, I am very deliberately bringing about that very intended and deliberate and specific perception by doing that. And I don't think a lot of people understand that and they need to. Also, if the director, no, if the cameraman's thumb is on the lens during that scene of the man kicking the dog, yeah. that is objectively bad filmmaking. Yeah. There's just, I don't know. I mean, unless you wanted to make it feel like it was a documentary and the, the camera person was candidly filming and you wanted to know and acknowledge the camera person there. You know, there's always a reason behind these things. Yeah. But um, those were good... Um, Good add-ons. I do appreciate you answering your own question. <laughs> that um, concludes this episode of Screaming in the Dark. Thank you for listening. The last question we have for oh today is from me to you. Daniel, if you and I had to make another podcast that was not casually critical, that was not about film, that was not about criticism, what would it be? That's a fantastic question. So one of the things James and I are passionate about is media and how it influences people and the power it has to influence people for good. I think something else that we are both very passionate about that I would love to make a podcast with you on 
is The Marriage of Theology and Faith and Creativity. Uh, the church, and let me be specific here, the Christian Protestant church has historically had a very dicey relationship with art. We thought D&D was satanic. We thought Harry Potter was satanic. We thought rock and roll was satanic. Uh, I think We thought a lot of things were satanic, just yes. in general. There anything is, could be satanic. Yes, anything could be satanic. This conversation could be satanic. Um, it is. <laughs> Hail Satan. So, uh, <laughs> just kidding. It's very subtle what I did. There's a book that I'm going to reference. Feel free to read it if you care at all about these two issues. It's called Imagine a Vision for Christians in the Arts, where it talks a bit more about the relationship of that. The Catholicism, regardless of how you feel on it, has a very, they hold art to a very high standard. There's something sensory about a cathedral and the garb in which priests adorn themselves and deacons and cardinals and the pope. There is a very elaborate aesthetic to it. There is a care in how things are presented and the ceremony. Interestingly, what I find is a lot of the biggest quote-unquote Christian filmmakers are actually Catholics. And I really wonder if perhaps it's how they perceive that art. So I think there's a lot of confusion, especially amongst Protestants, as to how does art play out in the church? Is it necessary? And um, how should we engage with it? And I think you and I could have a lot of useful things to say on that. How do we make creativity as Christians approachable? And how can we aid Christians that want to be better filmmakers in practicing our faith and executing that into our art? Just adding imagine uh, to my read list really Excellent. quick. I think that's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to that on audio here pretty soon. Sweet. Um, I agree. I think that would be a good podcast. Um, if you guys think that would be a good podcast too, maybe it's something we could record and release once every month or a couple months whenever a new idea comes around for discussion of course i feel like it's different than a uh as a movie releases we review it sort of thing it's just more about broader subjects but i think that would be a cool cool thing to discuss so Excellent. i like that idea hey guys thank you so much again for submitting things some of your questions we had to cut i know there were some film recommendations but listen even if we didn't answer your question we still hear it and we still have taken it to heart and we're still going to think about it and maybe do an episode on it. We'll see. Guys, we're Daniel and James. You love us. You hate us. But you listen to us. So we appreciate it. You've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. And there's really nothing funny for me to say other than just thank you for your support. It's because of you guys we're back. It's because of you guys we do this. It's because of you guys that we enjoy stuff like this. Have a good one. And look both ways before crossing the street. What he said. <laughs>